Welcome to the Public Morality. Is America a racist country? I suspect that many Americans, depending on the street corner they stand, have a prepared answer for the aforementioned closed-in question. It is a question that is neatly delineated down the fault line of race. In a recent Wall Street Journal poll, 60% of whites say no, America is not a racist country, while 56% of African Americans and Hispanics hold the opposite view. President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott recently offered that America was not a racist country. More than seeking to prove or disprove the validity of such declarations, perhaps it's better that we ask, are they oversimplifying the issue and it requires a deeper analysis? How are they defining racism and what did the rest of us hear when they said it? Joining me in this conversation is Professor Mary Frances Berry. Among her myriad achievements, Professor Berry teaches history at the University of Pennsylvania. She was the former chair of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, former chancellor of the University of Colorado at Boulder, and the author of numerous articles and books, her most recent book, In Search of Cali House and the Origins of the Modern Reparations Movement. We are honored to have her on The Public Morality. Professor Mary Frances Berry, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin our conversation with how do you define racism in the 21st century? What is it? Wow, that's a very tough question to to answer. Uh, what it is basically is having uh, behaving toward other people in a way that uh, indicates that you definitely think that they are inferior to you. <laughs> That's the first thing. And also having the power to act in ways that will interfere with their being able to achieve any kind of uh, positive change in their lives if should the occasion arise that you can do that. But generally it means acting toward people in ways that indicate that you know you are privileged or you are, they are inferior to you, basically, for reasons that have nothing to do with something they could change. Uh, you know, you could think somebody was inferior to you because you could run faster than they could or something. <laughs> um, but just by uh, characteristics of their um physical uh, identity that you see them and categorize them immediately. I can give you an example of that. I was in my um, uh, place in New Orleans and uh, had asked someone to come to give me a bid on doing some work on my windows that needed re woodwork needed repairing things in New Orleans. Uh, the dampness uh, rots wood pretty fast in some cases. But anyway, so I had this guy who was supposed to be an expert at this. Someone had recommended him, his company. And the day that he came, this was just last week, the day that he came to do get give me the bid, and he rang the doorbell, and I w went downstairs to let him in. I met him on the stairway coming up. And I said, oh, uh, someone let you in already into the building. Good. Glad you're here. And he said, um, I, I'm on my way up to, um, to uh, Mrs. Barry's house, <laughs> uh, to her place, and just walked and brushed right on by me <laughs> to go on up the stairs. So I said, oh, would you like to take the elevator? It's over there if you'd like to. It's a couple of flights up where you're going. He said, oh, no, I'm on my way up to get it. And I said, all right. I said, and he got halfway up and kept walking. And I proceeded to continue down because I decided I would go down and get the newspaper. I'm sure was dropped off even though uh, he was in already. And I knew he couldn't get in when he got upstairs anyway. <laughs> Unless I let him. So, 
And I came back upstairs, and he's standing there. I'm looking for Mrs. Bear. I said, you found me. <laughs> you are coming to my, <laughs> to my place. He didn't know what to do. There was a look of consternation on his face. And just that exchange, he had made a decision. He determined that whoever I was, I was not the person right. <laughs> who owned the place or occupied the place where he was going. Right. And there was nothing about me he knew except that he saw me and I was a black person. So That's you, all he knew. He couldn't have known anything so, else. So you couldn't <laughs> have been Miss Barry. You had to be someone else. <laughs> I could not have been Miss Barry. <laughs> it didn't matter who I was. I wasn't Miss Barry. He right. was sure of that. <laughs> now, that's one example I can give you. Another one I will give you quickly, and uh, it's not that I have more than uh, uh, two places that I live, so I don't have any more than that, so don't get the wrong impression. Right. But uh, at a house that I had in uh, Washington, D.C., I was standing outside in my patio because the neighbor next door was getting uh, some work done in his house. And the workers had dropped a brick, some bricks down, and one of them had landed and almost hit my head when I came out my door. <laughs> and they weren't taking safety precautions. So I screamed and said, you people, you know, this is dangerous. And they wouldn't stop. So I, uh, like any good citizen who doesn't uh, think immediately about if you call the police, they might shoot you, I uh, called the police. <laughs> And said, you know, nine one, I can't get these people to stop this. Would you send somebody over? And a police officer came, and he told them that they couldn't do this work without putting up some kind of precautionary uh, something. And we're standing there talking, and the pol the workers are still yelling about. And some of them didn't speak English; they didn't know what he was saying, and then they were yelling. It was, you know, back and forth. And I got kind of irritated because I had somewhere to go and I didn't have time to stand all there talking to them. So I said in a loud voice, please get this sorted out. <laughs> and another police officer came down the street and heard us talking and walked up to the police officer and took one look at me and said to the one who was already there, well, you know, what is she doing out here? People like her are always interfering when you're trying to do something. <laughs> well, now, that police officer had made an assumption, just like the guy who came to do the bid, <laughs> that whoever I was, you were that I person. was that person. <laughs> well, you know. So I think that this is pretty clear what kind, what I mean by racism. Well, well, you know, you, well, you know that actually... Uh, uh, Brings me to a question I was going to ask you later, but I'm going to ask it now. So you sort of open the door for that. Um, uh, in, in preparation uh, for our conversation with you, um, you conducted an interview last year with Amherst College. And here's what you said. You, you stated as a young scholar, you believe that if police charge you with something, uh, that meant you did it. Now, I'm assuming you don't feel that way now. And I'm wondering... Um, was there anything in particular, or talk about how you've evolved from, from that position, if, if, I, if I can assume correctly, you don't feel that way anymore? Oh, obviously, I don't feel that way anymore. What I was telling the professor at Amherst and the students was that when I first uh, learned about uh, Callie House, who I wrote a book about, My Face is Black is True, and a reparations book in the 19th century, uh, and I, the first thing I learned was that she was convicted in uh, federal district court and charged with mail fraud for her work trying to organize this movement. And at that time, I was just starting out as a scholar. My first inclination was, well, if the police arrested her and then all these government agents in Washington decided she had engaged in some kind of hanky-panky in this whole thing because I wasn't using what I knew even from being a child and seeing uh, police officers in the neighborhood, uh, including uh, one police officer uh, whose name last name happened to be Monday, and we were little kids. He would ride through the neighborhood yelling. This was in Nashville. 
yelling at kids out on playing out in the yard. What day is it? And when a little kid would say Monday, he would say, call me Mr. Monday and then ride, race his motorcycle through all the kids and scatter them like little baby chicks or something. And I forget, you know, I wasn't even thinking about that, but I was just thinking, well, if all of these people, these agents and all these people say she did. And then I realized, of course, as I thought about it, and as I matured, and as I put together all of my experiences and my knowledge, that this was ridiculous. The fact that the police uh, charge you with something doesn't doesn't mean anything, or they arrest you or encounter you with something. Uh, but that that is that's how I you know obviously that's how I feel felt as an adult, and as time went on, when I put it together, which is why. I proceeded to investigate whether Tally House had really done anything, and she hadn't. So <laughs> that was that. Well, let's just stay with that. Um, tell us a little more. Who is Tally House, and, and why is she important in the American narrative? Well, Tally House was a black woman from Rutherford County, uh, which is where Murfreesboro, Tennessee is, not too far from Nashville. And uh, she was a slave on a plantation there, she and her family. And when the war was over, the Civil War, uh, and they were emancipated, they lived there. And she grew up there. She married a guy who was a laborer. She had five children. And the uh, her husband uh, finally uh, passed. And uh, all of her relatives lived there. And she decided, because she heard about um, the idea of pensions, pensions, uh, men who had been in the military were supposed to get pensions, and there were some black people who, of course, served 200,000 plus and for the Union, uh, and some were around there, and they had trouble getting them sometimes. The government didn't want to give the widows uh, the pensions or the men themselves when they were injured. But she heard about that and heard about the idea from a white guy in church here at this who was um, trying to start what he said was get the government to give uh, black people pensions for their work as slaves. And he explained that he wanted to do this because the money would go to the black people and then they, the Negroes, as he called us, and then the money would be spent by them uh, with the white people, which is where they had to spend their money. <laughs> and the white people, it would help to recover the South because he knew the North was not going to give any money directly to the white Southerners. And she thought it was a great idea, but she didn't see why she should be concerned about the white Southerners <laughs> getting anything out of it or what he was saying. And so she got together uh, with uh, some folks and they started a movement, which they called an ex-slave pension movement. We now say formerly enslaved people but they said ex-slaves. And so they started this movement to get uh, people. She said, I want to get everybody's name on a petition. Uh, because when I was in uh, school here, uh, in the little schoolhouse that they set up, the Freedmen's Bureau and churches set up schools for black people in the South, I learned that you can petition the government if you want to. Ask them for what you want. And this man who's talking about he's going to do that, that's what he's going to do. So we're going to do that. And so they started a movement, and she became the leader of it. And they, she did indeed travel everywhere black people lived, she and the people in her organization, setting up chapters, and they had people uh, anywhere black people. It didn't wasn't just in the South. They had chapters in New York City. They had chapters out in the black towns, out in the West, in Oklahoma and other places. Uh, and she was trying to collect all the names. If people could write, they would write their names on it. If they couldn't, somebody else who could write would write it. And those petitions, by the way, uh, some of them are in the National Archives in Washington. And if anybody wants to see them, they can go there and look to see whether somebody in their family was um, their descendant of somebody there, who owned them, and where the plantation was, and all the rest of it. And uh, eventually, the organization, I'll stop there, because that tells you enough about what 
Kelly House, well, at least what she was doing. Well, I was going to follow up and say she had to be somewhat uh, effective because she was arrested. <laughs> That's the other way to look at it. <laughs> and it's clear that she was because I quoted in the book, the, the head of the pension bureau eventually, he was so mad that she was doing this because all these white people were writing to the government telling them this woman has got to be stopped. She's driving the Negroes wild, they said. Uh, this organ these people, they come go into church and they meet and they come out on the old, you know, plantation. They've been working and they go to church and they're singing and talking about how someday they're going to get something. And when they find out they're not getting anything, we're going to have trouble around here. One of the things that black people, I think, too often, and anybody who's interested doesn't realize is that white people wrote letters. They talk about white privilege. White people throughout the period during after slavery uh, wrote letters to the government, the Justice Department, Pension Bureau, whatever, complaining about black people being what some people call uppity, you know, <laughs> getting out of their place. Uh, they they wrote letters thinking that, you know, these black people, you you got to stop making them think that they can do this, that, or the other uh, in my neighborhood. But some black people wrote to the government uh, and said, why don't you come help us? These people are doing something. But anyway, those letters are all there. Eventually, the federal government said that her organization had about 300,000 dues-paying members. Did you hear that? 300 thousand dues paying members mm. that's a lot of people yes. that's more people than belong to any other organization that we know about that black people you know started up there may be others but i don't know about them and that's quite an accomplishment for somebody who's been a slave a woman a widow with five children to raise and with a grade school education and who was able to do that. And she did it just by going from place to place and never giving up and talking to people and doing things. In the first few years, there was a guy, uh, Reverend Dickerson, who had worked for this white man who was going around talking about he was doing it, who came, who was from Motherford County, too, and came back and helped her. And some people think that, well, he must have been the one who did all this because he's a man and women didn't do stuff like that then. But he died in 1909, and so and the movement kept going, so he couldn't have been doing it while he was dead, right? <laughs> so, so, so it was uh, Callie House. Um, I mean, she was just a, a, a marvelous person, uh, almost unimaginable, and so that's why the government went after her and charged her with fraud, mail fraud, using the mails to defraud, sending out flyers and, and getting in touch with members and sending them information and all that organization that that was mail fraud, and they convicted her in federal district court in uh, Nashville, all-white male jury, and put her in the Jefferson City, Missouri prison which is where they sent uh, women then. Um, and by the way, that case and the way they did it to her, they used that example when they charged Marcus Garvey later. The same thing, mail fraud. <laughs> and the fraud was at a time when she should have known that the government would never give black people anything. She was trying to organize black people to get something. Did you hear that? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. <laughs> now, she should have known that the government <laughs> was not going to give black people anything. So why is she organizing <laughs> to try to get the black the government to give black people something? Mm -hmm. You know, she's just an irritant. She's she's misleading these black people. Why should she be telling them that they should ask the government to give them some resources because they're poor and they were slaves? And she said, you freed us. When you took, you exploited, took, you took everything, our labor and everything else, and beat us and did everything else when we were slaves. And now that we're free, you're trying to starve us to death. <laughs> so you ought to give us something. <laughs> you know, a pension would be nice. You know? 
But they said, no, this is mail fraud. You you know the government's never going to give black people anything. Uh, uh, correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong, uh, but, she, but while she was imprisoned, Correct me if, if I got my if I have if my facts are straight or not. Wasn't didn't she also befriend uh, Emma Goldwyn, founder of the No Conscription League? Also, well, we know from Emma Goldman's uh, writings and her memoirs, and from the records of the prison, which I looked at, that they were there in the prison and the women's wing at the same time. And not only were they there at the same time. The women, what they did, uh, they had them working uh, sewing, uh, being seamstress. She had been a seamstress and a laundress, uh, uh, Callie had, uh, before she went to prison, like her mama was. And uh, Emma Goldman was a seamstress. So they were working on the sewing in the same environment all the time while they were there. I wish I could have heard some of their conversations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But... But there's no way, you know, we could have done that. Uh, but I thought that it was very interesting that the two of them, these two, what the government called radical women, <laughs> right. were there at the same time. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's sort of ironic in that, and I'm, I'm saying in theory, America's civic virtue is liberty and equality, in, at least in theory. Uh, but then you have two women um one both operating on first amendment privileges one the the the, the right to petition government for 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 grievances and the other uh for speech and yet they're both in prison it sort of shows this this kind of become reflective of sort of America's paradox we we said one thing but we do something else especially around this time period would that be accurate well, I think that that's right, that if she, Emma Goldman, believed that the First Amendment was real and that it ought to be real, <laughs> you know, you said it, that's supposed to be the right that we have and we should, even if you disagree with what I say, you know, we have a right to express ourselves and do this. And Callie House believed, and she said it over and over again, uh, that I don't understand. And, and she didn't know, I think you're correct about the the difference between what the government utters and puts in these great documents of our national life and at the same time what the government does to people and what we as a people do to each other, which means that, in a sense, what's written in the documents is rhetoric, rhetoric, simply rhetoric, (laughs) nice literary turns of phrases that are philosophical, that may apply to some people selectively, depending on who they are and how privileged they are, and other people, when they have the nerve to try to implement them or do what they say, they can be punished. And that's exactly what they were doing. So they are an example of the immorality of the the freedoms that people are supposed to have uh, to express themselves, yes. I'm speaking with historian, author, activist, uh, professor, Professor Mary Be- uh, Frances Berry, about the many facets of, of racism historically and in the present moment. Uh, professor Berry, you know, one of the things that just in, in your last answer, are we just unable to have a judicious conversation about race? And, and I'm thinking along the lines of the commission that um, – former Congressman the late John Conyers proposed several times, um, because if we have that conversation, it might open up a, a Pandora's box leading to a substantive and unavoidable conversation about reparations, as we're talking about Kelly House. And I wondered how you saw that. Are we just unable to have that authentic racial conversation? Well, we the reason, yes, the answer is yes, we are unable to have an authentic racial conversation nationally. So many times uh, over the years, we've had someone get up and suggest, we should have a national conversation about race. If I've heard that once (laughs) in the media, in public pronouncements, and speeches that people make, after the Rodney King episode that happened in California, people said, you know, well, maybe what we should do is have a national conversation about race. You could turn on any of the media and somebody would say, well, what do you think? Or I would be on the media and somebody would ask me. Well, I've been asked that question. So 
Don't you think, Dr. Barry, we should have a national conversation about race? <laughs> that this would solve the problem. Uh, and so, no, we cannot, we can have a conversation, but it won't really be about race because some of the people will be avoiding directly tackling the question of race. What it is about, what the problem is, is the inconsistency between the rhetorical claims that are made and what we actually do. Now, there's a sense in which, and this is a fault line in the American experience, really. Um, and what one of the things we do, the late judge, uh, A. Leon Higginbottom, used to say to me all the time, well, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson, we know he was old racist like those other people, but <laughs> he... Uh, in writing the Declaration of Independence with that committee that he was on that helped, that wrote it actually, um, he uh, didn't say all men are created equal except black people, you know, except Negroes, you know. And he didn't even say all men are created equal, and by men, I don't mean women, you know. He didn't say that. But the fact that he didn't, since we, Leon and I were talking about race, the fact that Jefferson, he said, and the framers didn't say all men are created equal except Negroes, means that they, he left open a loophole and an opportunity for us to thrust ourselves into the conversation. Whereas if he had said, except Negroes, then we couldn't even put ourselves <laughs> into the conversation. So shouldn't he get credit for something, he would look at me and say. <laughs> and I would say, he did that, yes, you're right. But the reason why he didn't, they didn't have to say, except Negroes, is that if you look at the Virginia Declaration of Human Rights, Declaration of Rights, that George Mason wrote, mm -hmm. um, he says uh, all men, you know, are created equal except you know, when they have come into uh, civilization or some word, some euphemism he uses. And in looking at the history of how he uh, wrote that, he thought by putting that qualifier in, that excluded Negroes because Negroes obviously haven't come into society or civilization. <laughs> so you could do it without saying it. Also, it is true throughout the Declaration and the other uh, documents uh, from the revolutionary period and of our national life that the framers avoided saying Negroes excluded everywhere you look. Where you could have put Negroes, you know, we're talking about everybody except Negroes. <laughs> Well, but well, they didn't do that anywhere. Well, Professor Barry, just staying with that, I mean, I, I, th I think it's quite also quite telling, in my view at least, that when they could have put slaves, in, 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 in whether it was to be Frist Compromise or justifying the Fugitive Slave Act, they put it in language other than slaves. So I guess that was said to me, they, there's something about this that didn't even sit well with them, is, is how, I, how I read that. I don't wonder how you saw that. Well, I don't mean that, I think that at the time of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, most of the uh, people who were writing it there, um, it, 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 some of them, of course, were slaveholders, and others were slave traders, because that's those from the North. My students are always amazed to find that out. Because uh, they say, well, you know, how come these Northerners, you know, what's up with them? <laughs> they, were, um, they were part of the Three-Fifths uh, Compromise. Yeah. Right. The, the language, by the way, that George Mason used in the Declaration of Rights is, you know, people, all men have uh, rights when they enter into a state of society. That's how he put it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and of course, Negroes weren't in a state of society. But I think that the reason why they did not say uh, Negroes or say anything like that, is we ought to understand the Declaration and the Constitution in terms of rhetoric and a broad general framework of government in the case of the Constitution. 
and as a uh, pronouncement of the need for independence in the Declaration of Independence. And we are not to take the Declaration of Independence as uh, having any kind of power uh, legally. People are often surprised, and students are, when I tell them, you can't have a lawsuit based on the Declaration of Independence. And they say, well, why not? (laughs) (laughs) And I say, because the Declaration of Independence is not a legal document. What it is is a pronouncement. It is a manifesto. It is an explanation. And so it uses broad, general terms, just like the French Declaration of Rights does. And so that is not intended to have any kind of legal potency or force. The, also, at the time of the Declaration of, uh, of the Constitution, the idea of um, um, the, the uh, preamble to the Constitution, which has the broadest kind of language, is uh, it also has no force. You can't bring a lawsuit based on the preamble to the Constitution. I mean, you can. You can bring a lawsuit on anything. You just can't win it. Uh, um, and because the language is it's sort of like an, an, an honorific. It's like the difference between having an honorary degree and having an earned degree, <laughs> something like that. Um, and so they didn't, they had these broad strokes and language. And so they talk about Negroes in the three-fifths compromise is what all of the persons. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least they said we were persons. That's what my good friend, uh, Leon Higginbottom would have said back to me. At least they said persons. <laughs> Suppose they'd said, you know, all, you know, uh, uh, instead of persons, what if they said, uh, and not including, um, um, gorillas or something, <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> But they didn't or describe you the way that Thomas Jefferson did in the notes on the state of, of Virginia and very inferior right. uh, graphic analytic, animalistic terms. So I guess it's the difference between rhetoric and reality or rhetoric and something having power. Um, you, you know, I'm going to switch to this century for just a moment. Um, uh, I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have you back on. We can talk about Jefferson's book on uh, on the notes of Virginia because that that in of itself is is, is a worthwhile exploration. Um, but but we look at in this century um, and we talk about structural racism, institutional racism, and the way they impact the lives of of, of people of color. And I, I was wondering, is that just really fundamentally harder for our for us to get our heads around because it's not it's not Bull Connor, it's not uh, Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd. And, uh, so is it just for those not those in the dominant culture? Is it just Harder for them to get their heads around, you think, the notion of structural racism? No, I don't think it's harder to get one's head around. I think when people really think about it, uh, when they're forced to think about it, um, I think that white people basically like having white privilege. You know, as as amazing as that sounds, that if you ask them if they wanted to give it up, and you made it in those terms, they would say no. <laughs> but if you, uh, it's like that uh, professor, I've forgotten the name of his book, uh, from NYU, who asked his class some years ago uh, whether they would like to be uh, black. <laughs> the white students, would they like to be black? Or would, you know, and uh, they all said, of course, said, well, it wouldn't make any difference. And then they went through all the things that happened to black people. And then they all said, no, we don't want to be black. <laughs> but, but at first it was sort of like, oh, we wouldn't care. You know, we could either be black or white. It wouldn't make any difference. That, that kind of rolls uh, easily and trippingly off the tongue, too, to say that. But when you're confronted with it, I don't think white people want to give up white privilege. I was speaking one time in um, Idaho or someplace like that out in the West to this uh, white, mostly white audience. Um, 
And I was talking about education and all the things that we should do to improve it for everybody so that everybody could get first class degrees. And, you know, I was going on and on about how wonderful this all would be and you pay for it. In the Q&A, a man got up and he said, well, to be perfectly frank, I don't want black people to have an education equal to what my kids get. <laughs> because then they'll be competing with them. I don't want them to be competing with my kids. (laughs) And people in the audience turned around and looked at him like, you know, if you think that, why are you saying it? You shouldn't be saying that, you know. Or when when one time I was on a show called Firing Line and William F. Buckley used to run, and now Firing Line comes on as a woman that that runs it. I was on it a few weeks ago. Um, But Buckley... Uh, ask uh, one of the the guys who was on there was a rabbi from New York whose name I can't think of right now, but he was on a lot of shows with me. And they uh, he asked him. Buckley said, "Well, we're going to talk about affirmative action, and what do you what do you think about it?" And he said to the rabbi. And the rabbi says, "Well, you know, for years I was against it, and then I was reading it, and I discovered that white women benefited greatly from it." Now I love affirmative action. <laughs> I thought that was very... And Buckley said to him, you shouldn't have said that, especially on television. <laughs> so I think that if you're given a choice of being black, and you know what happens to black people in our society, and you have to know because it's before you almost everywhere we look, um, you don't want to be black unless you... You know, you're black. I mean, if you're white already, why would you want to be black? Except if you're like the woman out, Rachel, whatever her name was, uh, right? who pretended she was black so she could be in, in the NACP and I guess run a local chapter or something. So in a sense for her, that was a way for her to get out of her identity of not being somebody to herself to being somebody. But I think that that's an unusual circumstance. Um. When one recalls uh, the civil rights movement of the of the fifties and sixties, much of that effort, and these are, these are my words, was 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 a prolonged, sustained effort for change. It, it wasn't dependent upon tragedy of say the deaths of uh, Goodwin, Cheney, and Schwerner to go into action. And so, my question to you, based on your experience, doesn't doesn't the American narrative suggest that change, however we define it, must be must require a sustained effort, and it just can't be reactionary, or it may eventually fizzle out? And I wonder how you saw that. You mean whether one has to be persistent in yes. movements and yes. trying to make change? Yes. I, well, I wrote this book called I wrote this book called History Teaches Us to Resist. Um, which has um, tells about various movements uh, and how they worked and whether they were successful or not and uh, what you have to do to be successful. And some of them I was involved in, like the anti-Vietnam War movement, the movement to end apartheid in South Africa, and so on. Um, but the main thing I say is that it, persistence, if you want to make change, um uh, you have to continue to struggle. There's no other way to do it. I mean, <laughs> you have to do it uh, so that a civil rights movement cannot be a snapshot of a period in time. Someone was asking me that I think we had a have a caste system, that blacks suffer from being in a caste system in the United States. And I said, no, because I've been in India uh, with the Dalits uh, and the tribals, and I know what their understandings are, and the difference between a caste system and what we have here and what black people have experienced is that in a caste system, you are taught to believe that you are supposed to stay the way you are forever. <laughs> you are in that lower level because that's where you, sp- or if you're in a mid-caste level or whatever level you are, the highest level. It's part of your religion, and it's natural to you, and it's something that you shouldn't be struggling against. Sometimes they get killed by the local authorities and people who are in power because they don't want them to teach people that we're all human beings and so on. But black people, 
the history of black people in the United States um, is that black people have never thought that they were supposed to be inferior. <laughs> you know, that that's just the way of the world. You're supposed to be inferior forever, <laughs> and it's good for you. <laughs> you know? I mean, there are people who told us that, <laughs> and there are people who've written that, and there may even be some, you know, there's a whole thing about uh, historians writing about how sl- uh, slavery was a school for Negroes and how it was good for us <laughs> to be slaves because we it helped us and we should be happy <laughs> that we were slaves. But we've never, we've always struggled. There's always been some, for, since 16, 19, and before, there's been some struggle going on against the idea that this is a permanent status for people like me. And so we are not part of it. It's not a caste system. So a civil rights movement has to be not a point in time, since you know that the opposition to the movement doesn't want the change that you're trying to get. (laughs) Then the only way you can keep the momentum going is to keep going after it directly over time. You, you you mentioned sixteen nineteen. I, I want to come. I want to go back to that for just a moment because I mean, to me, it's reflective of how, as a nation, we are hamstrung about the inability to have an authentic conversation on race because we have part of the country or part of the population thinks that America began sixteen nineteen. Others say seventeen seventy six. It's been one hundred and fifty seven years since the Civil War ended, and we can't even have a, compre- a comprehensive acceptance on why that war began so are we just doomed i don't i don't want to sound dire here but are we just doomed to be hamstrung by race is, is that just our fate well if we had not been uh made slaves if those decisions that they made in virginia uh there's slavery everywhere other places before obviously we know this but here we're talking about If they had not made decision after decision after decision, which is what I teach my students, watch each decision they make. They first have to decide that some of those people who came off that uh, ship uh, end up uh, with the children and the ideas of the child or the father, the condition of the mother, and not the white father that had them. So that settles that. Then they decide that just because you're a Christian, become Christianized, that doesn't mean, and some of them had been Christianized, that you can be free. And so what it finally comes down to (laughs) is that the condition we want you to accept, although there may be exceptions, like uh, one of the people who was on that ship ended up as a free person of color for a while and so on, but we want you to accept the idea of your inferior uh, status and it was put into law. I mean, the law said being a Christian doesn't help you. Uh, you know, having a white father doesn't help you. All these things doesn't help you. You're still a slave. You're still black, whatever. And they made those decisions. They could have, it could have been another way. I mean, they didn't have to. They could have said that if your father's white, you are free. Uh, they could have said that. If you become Christian, you're free. They could have said they didn't. And so what they did, and we know it's for economic reasons, mainly uh, to buttress the capitalist economic system and to make it expand because Northerners and Southerners and people who didn't have slaves in large measure supported it. So that um, it, it became embedded. And it's so deeply embedded that most of what happens since then is when somebody complains about it or there's opposition to it, we get rational uh, rationales and answers for why what we perceive as racism isn't really racism. It's something else, you know. It's not really racism. You know, the person just, um, the guy who saw me in the hallway um, he just, I don't know what he thought, <laughs> but he thought that based on where the neighborhood was and what was going on here and the building and so on, it never occurred to him there'd be any black people living here. Well, whatever you and were so wearing, whatever, my fault. Right. Well, I was going to say, whatever you were wearing that day, that's not what Mrs. Barry would have worn. <laughs> right. 
So I had on some, uh, some uh, it was hot, so I had on some shorts and a T-shirt <laughs> and was going downstairs to, to, to do this. But he, uh, so he made, uh, it was my fault. If I had been dressed appropriately, which is what friends of mine used to tell me, that if you go to the grocery store, and my mother used to tell me that, you should dress up. <laughs> So that people will, when they see you, they will, maybe they won't treat you so badly and they'll take you differently. And I would say, I don't feel like dressing up to go to the grocery store, <laughs> you know, but, and besides, they will might treat me a certain way anyway. Anyhow, um, so it was all these decisions that were made that embedded. It. So we're left with now, if you have a conversation about race. Bill Clinton tried to have one. He had that with John O. Franklin, that right. supposed to be a national conversation about race. And um, we all said to our good friend, John Hope, oh, love John Hope to death, this is not going to turn out well. <laughs> because whenever these things happen, then the people who say, well, I'm, I want change to come, the white people who are the good white people, will come and talk and some black people will come and talk, but the people who really don't want any change are going to come there and say, well, okay, let's see how we can make this change. And they're going to find reasons why whatever you do, however you frame it, that there's something wrong with the way you framed it or the way you asked the question. If you take the the civil war, there's no uh, factual dispute about what happened to start the Civil War, if you separate secession from war, right. okay? Right. No There's factual, no factual dispute. dispute about it. No, no factual Everybody dispute. Everybody right. knows. <laughs> right. If they, if they went to school, they ought to know factually. Maybe they didn't teach them this in school. That uh, the war started after Fort Sumter was fired upon. If they went to school, they would learn that Lincoln made all kinds of deals, including a 13th Amendment which would have kept slavery in perpetuity in an effort to try to keep them from seceding or doing anything, and they just went ahead and fired on Fort Sumter. So, indeed, the war came. Um, and so we know that that happened, but as for the cause of it, it is still true that many people in this country think that the war was caused because of something having to do with the Southern way of life, as they put it, being under threat and destroyed, uh, Southern nationalism. There are people, by the way, who think that the civil rights movement was unnecessary because, uh, and there are now some scholars who are trying to write, I don't know how much air they'll get, that uh, the civil rights movement shouldn't be called that because blacks didn't need a civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s because we already had civil rights. <laughs> and um, whenever they say that to me, I say, well, how did we know we had them? I said, did Fannie Lou Hamer think she had civil rights? I know Martin, didn't think, Martin Luther King didn't think he had civil rights. But anyway, they're trying now to write a new narrative that we had civil rights, but we just didn't take advantage of them, you see. And so that we had just misguided. A national conversation on race will end up being something where people pick at each other. Now, a commission, the H.R. 40 bill on reparations, which may or may not pass um, in the Senate, obviously, um, it will be, uh, if it happens, it will be a discussion about whether anything bad actually happened to black people or was it a school for Negroes. I mean, they won't put it like that, but, you know, slavery, you know, look, it wasn't all that bad. You folks survived. <laughs> you know, look at this. You not only survived, you've got... Uh, some of the best basketball players. You've got some of the best football players. You even got a few scientists and other people, and the media and so on. It's not like you were wiped out. Um, maybe and then there'll be people arguing that if we're going to give reparations, we should give them to, uh, they'll name some group that has already gotten reparations, you know? <laughs> um, so I don't put much faith in, uh, I think that H.R. 40 should pass and we should have reparations. 
Callie House would think it was the most wonderful thing that ever happened, and so would John Conyers. But I'm not sure how a conversation will turn out. Are, are you hopeful at all? Maybe maybe um, we won't see this day, but are, are you hopeful at all that at some point the nation will find that collective maturely to grapple authentically uh, with these issues? Um, I guess it would have to if it's going to survive. Well, we will survive. The nation will survive without grappling uh, authentically with it because it survived all these years without grappling authentically with it. I don't think the the demise of the nation is at stake. The demise of a lot of black people may be at stake, but I don't think the demise of the nation is at stake. Uh, I think that the nation will continue to have some people who will accept the reality that there's racism and it's structural and it's bred in the bones, so to speak, and that it undershores, under, uh, it undershores capitalism, which is, you know, we have racist capitalism. That's what we have. Um, but I don't think people want to give up capitalism, most of them, and they don't want to give up white privilege. So I don't think that whole thing, no matter how many laws we pass or whatever we do, there'll be some mitigation, but not altogether, no. Professor Mary Frances Berry, it has truly, truly been an honor to speak with you on the Public Rally. Thank you for joining us today. It's been much appreciated. Much appreciated. The Public Rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.